Good morning and welcome. How are you? Welcome to Kirkpatrick's online worship service. We gather together on Remembrance Sunday, which is obviously going to be a little bit different this year. After our first hymn, we're going to join in an act of remembrance to remember those who have lost their lives for our freedom. During our service, we're also going to be joined by people from across the Kirkpatrick church family. Eric is going to read for us, Christoph is preaching, and Hilda will lead our prayers for others. I know I have been so encouraged seeing familiar faces on my screen each Sunday, hearing their voices and what they have to share with us. The majority of us will be watching this online this morning. Some of our homes are a little chaotic, others a bit more quiet. Some of us will also be meeting in the church buildings to worship together. Although we are scattered, we are united in worshipping our God and King. We are united in celebrating all that he is and all that he has done for us. He is so great, his greatness cannot be measured. Let's pray Psalm 145 together. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Amen. Let's do that just now. Let's exalt our Lord, our God and King by singing Behold Our God. This morning's reading is taken from Genesis 18 verses 16 to 33. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. When the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep them on the way of the Lord, by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised for him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sins so grievous, I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. Not, If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of fifty righteous people? Far be it, you do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole city for their sake. When Abraham spoke up, Now that I have been as so bold as to speak to the Lord, through what I'm, through I'm, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty. Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. 
Once again, he spoke to him. What if there are only 40? What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me, but let me speak. What if only 30 people can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 people can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20 people, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak once more. If I, What if only 10 people can be found there? He said, for the sake of 10 people, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Good morning. I haven't been with you this last couple of Sunday mornings, so I want to begin by thanking Paul and Monty for their contribution to this series over the last couple of weeks. Thank you, Paul, for showing us in Genesis 16 God's ability to work his grace even in messy situations in our lives. And thank you, Monty, for reminding us that God leaves his mark on each one of us and that we in turn uh, can be used by God to leave uh, a mark on each other. As I come back on board with this series, let me remind you very quickly uh, what we're doing in a series like this. We're looking at the life of Abraham with a view to learning more about God's grace in our lives. As always, we're learning more about how we can follow Jesus. Sometimes people imagine that choosing to follow Jesus will make our lives more straightforward. They'll make them simpler. Um, it, It doesn't. Uh, at least not always. Disciples of Jesus Christ often find that their commitment to him, instead of making their lives simpler, makes them, in some respects, at least more complicated. One area that can seem more complicated uh, when we begin to follow Jesus is our relationship with people around us who don't yet follow Jesus. As we give ourselves to learning to love God, we wonder how we're to think about people who don't yet love God. Let me explain what I mean. Think of your journey to church. Do you remember when you used to get up, uh, you and anybody else in your house, you get up, get organized, and you come to church? So you leave the street that you live in and Maybe the neighbor on one side, the guy's out cutting his hedges or going out for a bike ride. And as we see that, we, we have this reaction. We think to ourselves, here I am going out to worship the living God and you're cutting your hedge or going out on a bike ride. There's something inside us that wants to judge him for his irreligion. Or imagine you've arrived, you've parked the car, you're in Ballyhackamore, maybe you're near one of the shops, and you you see a lady coming out of one of the shops. Uh, She looks a bit worse for wear. Uh, She's clearly had a big Saturday night. And you notice that she's carrying in her hands uh, a copy of the News of the World, a, a lottery ticket, and a box of fags. And again, there's something inside of you that wants to judge her 
for her lifestyle from your moral high ground. Maybe it's not until we engage in an exercise like this that we allow some of those feelings to come to the surface, some of those ways that we think or have thought about people who don't yet love God. Often we're judgmental. Often we're not concerned for them as people. So here's our question this morning. How ought we to think about the countless folks around us who don't yet love God? We aren't the first of God's people who've had to think about this question. The question's as old as the people of God themselves. It goes right back to our father Abraham. And we're going to see that in this morning's passage as we pick up the story halfway through chapter 18. We're going to notice three things. Abraham's surrounded by sin. Abraham's pleading for sinners. And God's acting in grace. So first of all, notice that Abraham's surrounded by sin. Before we come to look at the sin that's surrounding Abraham, I want you to notice how he's made aware of it. Monty was sharing with us last week from the first half of chapter 18 about three visitors who came to Abram and Sarah. Well, in verse 16 of chapter 18, we learn that when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And then we're shown, intriguingly, the mind of God. God asks himself, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Don't miss this. It's absolutely remarkable. Friends don't keep secrets from one another. I've been reminded of that this last number of weeks. As we have known the journey that we have been setting out on uh, with a possible call to Hamilton Road in Bangor, Claire and I have found that we haven't been able to talk freely about that with our friends. It simply hasn't been appropriate. Although it was very difficult to share that news with you a number of weeks ago, it was far, far better than keeping the news a secret. You see, friends don't have secrets from one another. I think that's what's going on here. The Lord has plans for Sodom that he doesn't want to keep from Abram. You see, Abram's increasingly becoming a friend of God. By the way, please don't think I'm being casual when I use the language of friendship to describe Abram's relationship with God. Three times in the Bible, Abram is referred to as God's friend. Once in Chronicles, once in Isaiah, and once in James. This man's just had a meal with God. And now he's becoming God's confidant. God is choosing to tell Abram what's on his heart. Folks, would you please pause with me for a moment to ponder the wonder of that. The possibility that we could be friends with God. Are you a friend of God? If you're in Christ, if you're a committed follower of Jesus, then you're a friend of God. That's exactly how Jesus put it to his disciples in the upper room. He said, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. So I ask you again, are you a friend of God? 
does he talk with you like he talks with Abram? I hope he does. You see, this is what God wants for you. He wants you as a friend. He wants a conversational relationship with you where he speaks to you and you in return speak to him. Isn't that amazing? That's my prayer for you. That you know yourself increasingly to be a friend of God. What is it that God says to Abram? Verse 20. God says the outcry against Sodom is so great and their sin so grievous that I'll go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So God's telling Abram about the gross sin of Sodom, and that's fair enough. But it seems a little bit strange that he's choosing to go and visit the people to see if they are. I mean, isn't this divine inspection a little bit strange? If if nothing's hidden from God, why is he going to all the trouble of visiting Sodom? What's going on here? Maybe God's going to these great lengths to establish what we might call due process. It seems to me that God, who's chosen to come to Abram in some sort of human form, is choosing to act in a way that would feel normal and comfortable for his human friend. I see a lot of grace in God's dealings here. At this point in the narrative, the party of three who had first come to visit Abram splits into two. Verse 22 tells us that the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but that Abram remained standing before the Lord. And and we can see that the party split when we get to verse 1 of chapter 19. We're told that the two angels arrived in Sodom. It seems that the Lord has stayed a little bit longer with Abram while two angels have gone to inspect Sodom and Gomorrah. What did they find? We didn't read the story, but it's it's just pretty grim. Opening verses of chapter 19, Sodom is a vile place. We get an immediate sense of foreboding in verse 1. The angels arrive in the evening, we're told. The Hebrew word for evening is simply black. This is a dark place. And it's a dangerous place. Whenever Lot discovers that the two angels are planning to spend the evening in the city square, he pleads with them to come into his home. He knows it's not safe. It's a dangerous place. And, of course, the subsequent events confirm that Lot is right. Before long, there's a crowd at Lot's door. They're demanding that he brings his guests out so that they can have sex with them. It's a truly awful kind of a a sexual offense. It's homosexual gang rape. And it's not just a small crowd either. We're told, verse 4, that the crowd includes all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old. The whole city is involved in this horrific act. The biblical account of these events, it makes for horrific reading. And I'm not going to dwell on the detail. By the time they've seen these events unfold, the angels have seen enough. Their inspection has left them in absolutely no doubt about Sodom's rightness for God's destruction. 
so far this morning, we've seen that Abram is surrounded by sin. We're going to see now Abram pleading for sinners. We've reached a key moment again here in the life of Abraham. Here this friend of God has been aware, been made aware of God's plans to judge some sinful people who don't yet love him. How is he going to respond? How does Abram think about those people who live near him who don't yet love God? In the remaining verses of chapter 18, we see a wonderful picture of a man who loves God and who therefore loves the people around him and pleads earnestly for them. It's a curious passage in some ways. Abram's bargaining with God. He asks God to spare Sodom if only there were 50 righteous people in it. So God agrees. And then he bargains God down to 45. God agrees again. And then he repeatedly barters with God and manages to get him down to 40, to 30, to 20, and finally to 10. And at that point, the negotiation ends. Despite the obvious wickedness of the sin er, of the city, uh, Abram knows all about it. Abram pleads with God on behalf of these people. Whatever else this strange conversation tells us, it surely tells us that Abram, the friend of God, is also a friend of sinners. He is in no doubt about Sodom. He knows what kind of a place it is, and yet he loves the people there. Folks, I wonder whether we may need to recover something of this love for the people around us. For too long, we have imagined the church to be a place where nice people like us come to gather together with other nice people like us. We imagine that it's okay to keep our distance uh, from the people around us who don't yet love God. We're content to harbor feelings of moral superiority. We look at the, the great unwashed out there in the world. Folks, that's not the way of Abraham. Abram pleads with God for the salvation of the people of Sodom. He's an advocate for these sinners and he's a good friend to them. As he takes on that role, he's giving us a glimpse of Jesus, his great descendant, who made it his business to love sinners for God. We're asking today, how ought we to think about the countless folks around us who don't yet love God? our colleagues, our neighbor, our spouse. Well, let's learn from Abram. Even more so, let's follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Let's stop judging our neighbors and let's instead plead with God for their salvation. We've thought about how Abram's surrounded by sin. We've now seen Abram pleading for sinners. We'll close by noticing that even in this difficult passage, God is acting in grace. To talk about God's grace in this chapter, we need to recognize that it comes against the backdrop of God's judgment. I'd like to take a moment just now to invite you to think with me about God's judgment. And I'm going to invite my theology professor, Dr. Packer, 
to join us in the conversation. Let me share one basic point about God's judgment and answer one objection to God's judgment. And let me do both of those things with material taken from a chapter entitled God the Judge in Packer's classic book, Knowing God. First, a point about God's judgment. Packer says that the heart of the justice which expresses God's nature is retribution. The rendering to persons what they have deserved. For this is the essence of the judge's task. To reward good with good and evil with evil is natural to God. Packer goes on to say about the retributive nature of God that this is one of the basic facts of life and being made in God's image, we all know in our hearts that this is right. This is how it ought to be. Having made the basic point about God's judgment, let me answer a question about God's judgment that's on many minds today. If God's retributive justice is really how the world should be, why do we shy away from the thought of God as judge? Why do we feel that judgment is unworthy of him? Packer answers this question with another question. Would a God who didn't care about right and wrong be an admirable being? Would a God who put no distinction between the beasts of history, the Hitlers and the Stalins, and his own saints morally be a morally praiseworthy and perfect person? Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being is the fact that he's committed himself to judge the world. Thank you, Dr. Packer. So it turns out that human beings are wired to long for fair judgment. And it turns out that God is the only truly fair judge. I hope that this brief look at the judgment of God, leaves you persuaded, along with Abraham in Genesis 18, 25, will not the judge of all the earth do right? So God, the righteous judge, he's going to destroy Sodom for it's all too evident gross sinfulness. But he won't do so before he's rescued nephews, Abraham's nephew Lot. We see beginning verse 12, are the angels warn Lot of the coming danger. They urge him to leave the city and they finally drag him to safety. Do you remember when Abram was bargaining with God? He asked God to spare the city if only 10 righteous people could be found there. Well, it turns out there aren't 10. And it turns out that Lot and his wee family are far from righteous. Did you see how they're portrayed? In chapter 19. Remember where we found Lot in verse 1? That's right. At the city gate. That means he's on the city council. Lot's up to his neck in Sodom's vile culture. The sons-in-law, when they're invited to flee from God's judgment, they're not interested. They think it's all a big joke. Lot, his wife and his daughters, all of them together seem to be dragging their feet. It takes the angels to drag them 
uh, from the city to finally save them. Whenever the angels tell them to, to get, get to the mountains, get some distance between you and this city and God's judgment, Lot asks in verse 20 whether he can be allowed to stop in, in a nearby town. If this guy escapes God's judgment, it's going to be only by the skin of his teeth and only in spite of himself. And when the judgment finally falls, Lot's wife is so busy looking back to sinful, vile Sodom that she loves so much that God's judgment envelops her too. Folks, there weren't ten righteous people in Sodom. There weren't even four or three. The three who do escape do so reluctantly because God in his grace pretty much drags them to safety. If you have any remaining doubts about the morality of Lot and his daughters, there's an episode at the end of the chapter that just about says it all. Sodom is vile. Lot and his family are sinful. And yet, in his grace, God saves Lot from destruction for Abram's sake. Folks, this is still how God works today. God, the righteous judge, chooses to save vile and sinful people who trust in Jesus by his grace. At one point in knowing God, Dr. Packer tells us how we sinful people should live in the light of God's coming judgment. He says, the New Testament's clear. Call on the coming judge to be your present savior. As judge, he is the law, but as savior, he is the gospel. Run from him now, and you'll meet him as your judge then, and without hope. Seek him now, and you'll find him. And you'll look forward to your future meeting with joy. Folks, we started this morning wondering, how should we respond to people who don't yet know Jesus? We realize that often we're judgmental, that we don't care for them as, as we might and as we should. Perhaps it's because we've forgotten that we're vile and sinful ourselves. And that we have been saved from God's righteous judgment only by God's grace. When we remember that, and to the extent that we do, we'll see others more as Abram did. We leave the judgment to God. And we'll plead for sinners. That they would respond to God's amazing grace. Father, thank you for your amazing love which sent your Son to open the way for us to come into your presence and find an everlasting relationship with you. We are truly blessed. Thank you for your promise that you are with us and will never leave us or forsake us. Your love is so great and it never ceases to amaze us in its height, depth and width. We come before you this morning in all our shortcomings, hopes and fears and seek your wisdom and your direction in these changing times within and without the church family here in Kirkpatrick. Thank you that we are reminded that you are the same today as you were yesterday and will be tomorrow. 
We commit to you, Christoph, Claire and the family, as they prepare to move forward into the next chapter in their service for you. Thank you for the blessings they are to us and for the work that they have accomplished through the life and fellowship of the church family. We have been and are blessed. May you go before them, preparing the way for them in their new spiritual home. We thank you for the members of our Kirk session and for their leadership. May they continue to be guided by you as they prepare for new beginnings and sustain existing work. We pray you will give them wisdom and clear direction. We pray for those within our fellowship who have lost family and friends through illness or accidents. May they know your loving touch of comfort, strength and peace and help as they grieve and mourn. We pray for those in government and local authorities as they make decisions for the health and safety of us all. May they honour you in all they do. We pray for those who are struggling in business, loss of earnings and contact with family. We pray they may find practical help and ways in which they can find that help and sustain it in these trying times. We pray for all who work on frontline, whether in the NHS, communities, schools, maintain clean streets, deliver goods. Please keep them safe as they go about their work. Thank you. In November, we're particularly aware of the sacrifice of those who give their lives and service for the protection of our country and communities, whether in the World War One and Two, Iraq, Iran and the Falcons, or here in our own country. May you be with their loved ones who mourn and grieve their passing and who need your love, healing for deep wounds and hurts. Thank you. Into your hands, Lord, we commit our prayers to you today. Amen. Uh, thank you to Emma, to Eric and to Hilda uh, for sharing with me in this service today. Uh, most of you will have heard by now or will have read in my email of this week that after hearing me on Sunday the 25th of October, uh, the congregation in Hamilton Road in Bangor uh, are in the process of calling me to be their next minister. Uh, so at present, I am making plans uh, to begin ministry at Hamilton Road probably in early January. Uh, I want to say thank you. Uh, to everyone who's been in touch to convey encouragements or congratulations or, or appreciation. Uh, there, there is, of course, much more to be said, and, and we will do that over the next couple of months as Claire and I and Patty and Sophie and Ruby uh, prepare to move on from Kirkpatrick Memorial. In the meantime, I really would value your prayers for me and for the family. We're entering or have entered into another period of a, a limited lockdown uh, and with the prospect of a long winter ahead of us. Uh, we appreciate that there will be brothers and sisters in our church community who may be facing uncertain or difficult financial circumstances. Uh, and we want, to, we want to be in touch with you about that. We want to get get involved and help you as well as we can. We've made mention of this in our weekly email and we're addressing topics there like 
loss of income, any financial hardship you might be experiencing, and also opportunities to partner to bless other people during this season. Do get a look at that email and help us to think together uh, and act as the people of God in this time of financial hardship. During November, you've been collecting packets of rice for Storehouse. Uh, I've also included in the update uh, some more information from Storehouse about opportunities to give to Christmas hampers and to sponsor a turkey. Get a look at that in the email. And then one last piece of church family news. Alison and Peter Storing uh, were delighted to welcome baby Luke into the the world on Tuesday, the 27th of October. Uh, Please join with them in thanking God and pray for them at this time. Uh, Our closing song in today's service is one that um, reminds us that although God's a righteous judge, he loves nothing more than to, to reach out in Jesus and to rescue sinful people. Mighty to save. And that's us. Thank you so much for being a part of our worship service this morning. As we remembered God's mercy towards his people. I hope you have a restful Sunday. And you know God's joy and peace during this week ahead. Let me leave you with the words from Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.